While you're at it, keep the noise going for Chris and Meryl Vinanda. Come on up, you guys. So much love to you. Okay, if you have been around Bridgetown any length of time, you already know Chris and Meryl. Um, these people are dear to our heart. If you don't, very short introduction. We've been in a relationship for, I think, around five years, something like that. Chris and Meryl don't live here, live in Costa Mesa, Southern California, where it's sunny all the time. Um, and are church planters, pastors with decades of experience and have kind of become a second, I have great parents, but a second mom and dad and mentors both to my wife and I, to really our staff and our team, and to all of us. I've really played that role of what the New Testament calls an apostle, a kind of father-like prophetic voice into the life of more than just the local church, but the church at large and ours in particular. And so we've invited them into our, our you know, I hear all these stories of churches that are kind of old and wish they had young people and we're kind of <laughs> young and wish we had old people. <laughs> we love you. What are you we're, trying we're, to we're say? We're so happy that what you're you here. Bring your mom. parents. Um, so, no. And so you just play such a necessary role in the life of our church. And we're so grateful for you. And thank you for saying yes to the board. We have a board meeting tomorrow night. That's why you're in town. And I just want to interview you guys for just a little bit before we turn the pulpit or the table over to you, Chris, to chat for a little bit. We um, tonight kick back into our summer-long practice of eating and drinking. And if you've been around for the summer, we said there are three dimensions to this practice. And we have covered one per month. In June, it was kind of eating and drinking with the lost, that's language from Jesus of Nazareth, or what Rosaria Butterfield calls radically ordinary hospitality. And then last month was eating and drinking with the family, this idea of church as a family around a table. And then now we want to kind of tie it all off with this idea of eating and drinking with God, or what, depending on the church tradition, is called the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, or communion, or the Mass, or whatever name it goes by. And so for the next few weeks, we'll explore from the scriptures, from church tradition and history, um, this beautiful reality, this practice. And we'll also talk in depth next week about the history of how what was originally a meal turned into a cracker and juice. And we'll start to re-envision a new way forward for this practice that is actually around a table together in community. So we'll, we'll talk more about that next week. In the meantime, I wanted to interview you guys because you're church planning and you're church planning around a table. And we'll get there in a minute. But first... So, Chris, you just turned 60. You just had a birthday. I have. Which you invited me to, and I was... I have. So, I have. Yeah. So, yeah. level lots six. Lots of numbers. Level lots six. Lots and lots of numbers. Lots and of numbers. You, <laughs> you two just sent off your youngest child to college. And Point that's, Loma. That's an amazing... Mo <laughs> He's got to go and surf. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it, you know? And, um, but what I love about you is as you enter into decade six, Chris, and you're now empty nesters, it would be, my guess is, the temptation would be, would be really easy to just coast for the next 10, 20, 30 years and just kind of Can live, we? live off the momentum of, you know, your story, which has been so amazing. You planted in Durban, South Africa, and then in Southern California, and now for the third time, church planting again. Um, but instead, your church planning, you just went back to graduate school, graduated, I think, top of your class, you said, and are practicing therapy, started a therapy practice, <laughs> and I'm just blown away. And yet, when I'm with you, you don't strike me as stressed out or unhealthy. So many in particular of your generation, Chris, of the men in particular that I know from your generation were just so driven, so much ambition. And I think Jesus' teaching on take up your cross was interpreted in the church that I grew up in as sacrifice your emotional health in the name of the church, um, which 
ends up being be rude and unhappy and mean to your family in the name of the church. I don't think that's what Jesus was saying at all. But you just model the exact opposite. When I'm with you, when I'm in your home, when I'm around your table, when I'm with your kids who are my age and incredible, um, you're just full of life and vitality and health and rest and joy. Can I get this on tape? And yet... I would just like to... Uh, and you yet you're doing again? so much. So, so here's the question. Meryl, let's start with you. What... What is it? What is the the motivation for you to not coast, but to give your life away yet again? And how how do you stay emotionally healthy with just the the life demands that you're up against right now? Mm-hmm. Wow, um, I Jesus found me at 15. I'm now 56, and one of the things that has been one of the best things that I've done, and there's a, so, you know, it's wonderful to see so many young faces, is when I've said yes to him. And saying yes to him means no to something else. Mm. And I think yes to him has probably been one of the best things that I've done, has, has fueled that love and passion, and I want to keep going, I want to keep growing, I never want to stagnate, I want to be used. I like to kind of tell myself, I want to be used all up when I go to heaven. I don't want to have anything left. I want to, you know, I want to serve Jesus passionately. And um, from when I did, you know, Jesus found me, I, I wanted to bind up the brokenhearted. That was my desire. And it's had many different forms. And I've been a, a church pastor with my husband full-time and um, been a mom, a wife, all of those things when I've said yes to Jesus have blossomed, and when I've kind of think I've got a better idea, it's crashed and burned. And I think, you know, if I can just say in terms of, you know, studying, which maybe most, a lot of you are, that means, you know, here's a block of time and you have to say no to some things. And the best thing you can say yes to is what is Jesus asking of you? And this church does a phenomenal job with the the disciplines and um, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And yeah, I just think for me right now, church planting was terribly scary, saying yes to that and being a therapist. But it's been a, a the most wonderful journey to see how God has orchestrated our steps and broaden these. We also have a church full of young people. So About so many. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice little crew. And we are honestly just loving the journey, um, passionate about serving God and making sure that I say no to the things that he, he doesn't require of me and yes to the things that he does. And one of them is we have a midweek in our home and I get home Which from... Which is like our version of it's a Bridgetown like community. Community. Around a table. Around a table. Yeah. We eat together. And I come home from a, maybe a 12-hour day. And I sit in my garage and I think, oh, Jesus, this is so hard. I just want to go to bed. And um, I just say, God, give me the grace to do what you've called me to do. And mm. I can honestly say, I literally walk in and these beautiful young people just love on me and I love on them. We share a meal together. We share our lives together. They minister to me. I minister to them. And I go to bed full. I go to bed way more full than I arrived home. And to me, that's the beauty of relying on Jesus. And when you're weak, then you're strong. 
And um, yeah, I think that's how we do it. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love that frame. I want to chat a little bit more about the meals. So yeah. one of the things that's really unique about their church plant that goes by the name Genesis is that you plant it around a table. So mm -hmm. it's obviously much smaller than our church, and you're just getting started. But they start with a meal on Sundays, not just in the midweek, but they start on Sundays with an hour-long or so meal. And you hate the word potluck. It's a cool potluck, basically. Um, but whatever. It's a feast. It's a culinary delight. It's whatever it is. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so <laughs> I don't even, I have so many things I want to say right now. But you've, you've planted your church around a table. You begin before there's a worship song, before there is a talk, before there's anything, there's a meal. And yeah. that meal is how you practice the Lord's Supper or yeah. communion or whatever. That meal is, as it was in the early church, the meal itself was. It was come eat and drink, not yeah. snack and sip, you know, but it was yeah. a meal. Around, and we'll talk more about this next week and re-explore a future for us. Um, but talk to me about why, why lead front foot forward with the table and a meal as the foundation for your Sunday experience, not rent the cool, sexy theater and hire so-and-so, to lead, Matt Ziganis, to lead worship for you no. or whatever. Uh, is that an uh, offer? Yeah, don't You're offer offering? him a job. Don't You're please offering? offer him a yeah, anyway. I can give him California but, plus five. <laughs> <laughs> so wh why, what was the motivation there to, to plant around a table? You know, when God approached, began to whisper uh, that we were to plant again, I said, you know, Lord, uh, Southern California and certainly Costa Mesa has many incredible churches who do many incredible things. I couldn't see any value or worth for us to do what's already being done. Well, then the obvious question is, what's the alternative? And um, John Mark, the thing that uh, we started doing was exploring church future, and we ate together and we just conversated, what does the church need to look like? We're not in the 90s anymore. What does the church need to look like going forward? And uh, the more we ate together, and, and we've enjoyed it, something that's been very dear to our hearts. Our dining room table for the 38 years we've been married has been a very sacred space. We love, love, love eating together. And uh, I spent about 18 months looking at Acts 2, 36 to 47, over and over, every day. Just saying, Lord, what's in the text? Why was this early church so magnificently beautiful and raw and naive and power and signs and wonders? And three times, as John Mark preached recently here, it said that they broke bread together. And everyone agrees that wasn't as we know it today. They were eating a meal together. And then I began to look at your generation. I look and I have kids, this generation, and I realized that actually their pulpit is not a platform. I mean, it's not a, it's not a pulpit, it's a table. I want to be seen and heard. And uh, a marriage of prolonged celebration, what we love doing, a study of the scriptures, which I enjoy doing, and then just feeling the nudgings towards reaching those who really are tapping out and saying, I'm done with churches, I know it. And uh, we just started eating together. And five of us did the first night, and we had steaks and salad and a bottle of wine, and then they drank my scotch, and I wasn't a happy guy. And, um, <laughs> and uh, I just, true. that you, was the you moment. You don't mess with him and his scotch. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was the moment. That was the moment. I said, all right, Lord, we'll do this. And Meryl was in South Africa, actually. She came back. I said, babe, we're going to plant this church. She said, really? I said, yeah, but we're going to do it around a table. And within four weeks, we had about, the one night we had 55 people around our table eating together. And I knew we'd stumbled onto something. So uh, there's real joy. It's not a potluck. Mm. Um, 
But uh, it really is. But everybody brings food to a large meal. Yeah, and it's not last night's hot dog that we didn't eat. <laughs> Tell us about your little culinary tour thing. So Here. what we're going to do is uh, every <laughs> so every Sunday night um, I set a culinary theme the week before, and uh, because I really did want us to celebrate and feast well. I mean, if we're going to do this thing, let's do it superbly, Come and it's on. got to be visual, and it's got to be uh, the, the, the fragrances and the complexities of the meal, and uh, all the different chefs. It. I mean, it's exactly. Just... Look on the Instagram, you'll see the pictures. And <laughs> the so, table is 150 feet long. Exactly. Exactly. And then you go around the corner. And uh, so we just said, <laughs> why don't we in September go around the world? So first Sunday, we will have Japanese, then we'll go Chinese, then we'll go Indian, we'll go Pakistani, we'll go Australia. You can have a pie, mate, you know what I mean? You can have a pie. And, um, and then we'll go Middle East, and then we'll go European, and just travel the world, because part of my heart is this glorious gospel has to go to all nations. Then the end will come. And so why don't we advance the global gospel by front-ending it with food from those contexts. Oh, I love it. In most churches, attendance rises or falls based on the sermon series. For you guys, it's based on the, yep. the genre of food. Yep. That's like Australia, nobody's there. Nobody's that there. Lebanon, we get, we have hummus. To import Who doesn't kangaroos. like hummus? It's double the size. It's yeah, exactly. fantastic. Um, final question, just before we turn it over to you, Chris. As you pray and dream about church future, and you know our story well, is there anything that you want to speak into the life of our church? confirmation or correction, you, Meryl, as well. Anything that you would just say to us as we dream about the future and the yeah. table and all of that? This is a magnificent space. It really is. Sundays, the three occasions you gather, great worship. My son, who's 19, he's pretty chill about church, and he loves the worship here. And he's traveled with us. He's traveled around the world with us, small churches, big churches. You, you are spoiled for the wonder and the amazement of the presence of God amongst you through the leadership. Really, I'm not saying that to flatter you. It's too sacred a moment to do that. But what can happen is we can create a dependency on this moment to carry us for seven days. This is wonderful as Jesus did with the thousands, but this is not true spiritual life and growth. Yes. The clear narrative of the text is we do it together around a table with full disclosure of honesty and vulnerability. Those of you who are buying in to journeying with a small group around a meal will experience the depths and joy of Christianity in a way those who have a pop-in once or twice a month to satisfy some spiritual obligation, you will never have that. I don't say that with judgment or criticism, it's just a reality. But when you buy in to the privilege of doing life with a smaller group, honest and true and vulnerable, we take off those false selves that we present with great kind of spiritual perfection, and we just honest, real, true people around a meal, that is, uh, I think, one of the most exquisite parts. It is part of the church. My conversation is for those of you who aren't persuaded. Tiptoe in lightly. But this I can promise you, it will be a journey that will deepen your walk with God. It will be more honest for you as a Jesus follower and lover. And um, it is so wonderfully biblical and so culturally powerful. Wow, I love it. Anything from the prophetess, Meryl? You know, the one thing that came to mind was to really do the hard work. I think sometimes we just think everything must be instant, everything must be easy, everything must be quick. 
And um, I just think you are getting some of the most phenomenal teachings in this church. Uh, the From a homeschooler. No, no. That's a miracle, uh, oh. and a sign, and a wonder. <laughs> Might not be cool, but I read a lot of books. Uh. <laughs> and, but, you know, it's, it's, truth doesn't do anything unless it's really embraced yes. and lived out. And so I just want to say, please feed on this, on what you're hearing, feed on the word, do the disciplines, you know, just plug in and, and get it done. And um, we can honestly say that, well, I, I can say of this man, my children have grown up with a father who, oh, I'm getting emotional, who took it seriously to be with God, to every single morning be downstairs praying, meeting with God, reading the word, just, you know, kind of, I feel like, opening the door to his family. And I believe our children, myself included, and the children live in the fruit of just a faithfulness in the, you know, long obedience in the, in the same direction. Oh, gosh. Let's put this on the podcast so I can go listen to that again <laughs> later. Thank you, Meryl, for being with us. Can't wait to have drinks later tonight. Um, before you're scotch, why don't you talk about Jesus and the oh. Bible for a little bit. Meryl, thank you so much. Um, Chris, we turn it over to you. So it is an absolute joy and a privilege to be here. Honestly, every time Meryl and I um, come up either just to hang with them or to be with the community, or now that we're on the board, we, we, like, we really fancy I, I, I listen to Eric and Sonny, and I think, what on earth are we doing on this board, you know? I, uh, I, I saw a spreadsheet once. Uh, it was quite scary, actually, so, so I, I didn't ever look at another one. But I think we'll make a contribution. I think we will. Grab your Bibles, if you don't mind. Uh, we're going to go to Corinthians. For those of you who are a little less acquainted with the text, it's Paul writing a fatherly letter to a, a really motley crew in a city called Corinth, um, and it's a Gentile community predominantly, which we'll talk about in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible, I think you can listen. I'll try and read it well, and um, we'll just open up the Scriptures for a little bit together. In the following directions, and I'm reading from 1 Corinthians, we're looking at the 11th chapter, and we're picking up in the 17th verse. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, Paul writes. In the first place, your, sorry, for your meetings do more harm than good. Your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, he uses that little phrase five times, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, 
On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, The cup is of the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves... And we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the word. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you shall all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. It's a very curious passage. Let me give you a visual aid. I have to use my imagination when I preach because I have to see it to declare it. And in our modern vernacular, it really would be Paul on a cell phone. Paul would be on a phone to Corinth. It's almost like Timothy saying, who is it? And he's saying, Corinth, what do they want? And what he does is he answers a number of questions. Now, bear in mind, these were, these were Gentile converts. They weren't Jews who had the sacred scriptures. They were from a pagan background or Caesar worship or something else. And now they find themselves in this collection in the Corinthian church. Could you imagine the pandemonium as they try to make sense of all these moments? What are we supposed to do? Should we? Shouldn't we? How do we know? There was no Bible as we know it today. That some of Paul's writings and teachings, that Apollos's and whoever else came through town, but it was pandemonium. And so Paul's fatherly heart, they say he was a short guy, receding hairline, crooked nose, slightly overweight, not a great communicator. But his fatherly heart keeps leaking through all the time, and here they have a situation that is completely out of control. The Lord's Supper. Now, many of you would come from a tradition where that is something like you know and understand, a wafer and grape juice. That is not what they had. What they had is they would eat a meal together, and the front end of the meal, one of the leaders in the community would take the bread, would break the bread, and would say something like this. This is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then they would eat a full meal together. And then he would pick up a cup, someone would pick up a cup, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ of the new covenant, and then they would drink that together. Pause there for just a moment with me, if you may. You know what I love? I'm, I'm a history graduate. And what I love in studying history is what happened for 250 years. For 250 years, the church met in homes. On occasion, they were large groups as we see in Jerusalem, but by and large, they were small groups of Jesus lovers who did life together in a home. For the first time in 250, uh, archaeologists have found a house 
that had the walls broken down in a room specifically set aside for the function of worship. For 250 years, now those of you who are historians will know something really important happened at about the same time, and that was the demise of the Roman Empire from its pagan and Caesar worship to Christianity becoming the prevailing faith. Isn't it amazing? It wasn't a number of large, big, influenced, uh, celebrity-driven megachurches that changed an empire. It was many small groups of Christians who did life together around a meal. They ate together. That was the nucleus of a civilization shift. Now we know it wasn't just the church, but there were many other ingredients that brought about the downfall of the Roman Empire, the barbarians being one of them, and you and I know that. But there was another thing that caught my attention as I've been reading and studying this, and there was the two plagues. I can't remember the exact date. I think it was something like 160 and then 210, something in those ranges. But you know what I found curious as I read it? Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, particularly helpful. When the plague started creating incredible chaos around the known world. There was no medical answer for the plague. And so what happened was people, the moment someone, a baby, a child, a mother, a father, a grandparent, picked up the plague, what happened was is that person was literally, according to historical accounts, thrown onto the street, the doors were locked and barred from them coming back into the family, and they were left to die a painful, lonely dastardly death. Those who were wealthy would escape to the country, to the beach, to um, the hills. But then there were small groups of Christians who ate together in homes. They did not run by the historical accounts. But they were the ones who opened their doors to those who were dying and brought them in and bathed their, their fevers, gave them dignity as they lay dying and fed them knowing that the moment they opened the door, it would produce death for the parents, for the children, and for the family. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that for me is a brutal thought. I have to be honest and say, I don't know if I'm courageous enough to do that. I feel myself incredibly challenged that such was the compelling nature of an eternal hope with Jesus, that death right now is a simple way of bringing dignity and redemption to a dying person, and it's cheap at the price. A civilization was impacted by a group of Christians in a home who ate together and who opened their doors to let the dying come and bring their death with them. It's a brutally beautiful picture. The early church ate together. When Paul said, your meetings do more harm than good, he isn't talking about kids' ministry or a cool, sexy worship set or the lights or the production. He didn't talk about, he said, when you eat together, 
That's how your meetings are doing more harm than good. Ladies and gentlemen, in our speedy modern world, the idea that Christians eat together every time they gather together is an anathema. It's a foreign idea. Chris, I've got to fulfill my Christian obligation. Start on time. For heaven's sake, I'm German. Well, I am. That's why I know. And I want an hour and a quarter, and if it's John Mark preaching, an extra 15 minutes, but no one else. And I want, at one and a half hours, I want to get out of here because I've got dinner to get to. I've got to rush because this whole Christian walk, a modern trumpet call is, is selfish, self-preoccupied, and narcissistic. Please don't require anything else of me. It's not really close to the Bible, is it? Your meetings do more harm than good. Because when you come together, everyone thinks of themselves. That's what I suspect Paul might say to the modern Western church. John Stott, the great Anglican theologian, said four things happens when we meet together like this. The first, he says, is partnership. Isn't it amazing that Paul is astounded? He says, when you come together, I'm amazed that there's divisions and fractions amongst you. Groups of people that have scattered and are preoccupied and, and little eddy currents of gossip and confusion. He says, how can this be? He's completely confused. How can it be that we come to eat together and all these divisions of self-opinionated priorities gather in when actually the very nature of this gospel is to create a sense of togetherness? Five times, he says, when you come together. Ladies and gentlemen, Christianity is slow. I was in Laguna Beach. We've got a friend who has a house there, and he let us use it. And um, Meryl and I were kind of foraging, as is our custom. Paul went to the synagogue, as was his custom. We go to the thrift store, as is our custom. We got $20. And uh, there was this little book called Slow Church, and I was curious. I picked it up for three bucks or whatever it was. And although I didn't agree with everything in it, there was this rolling sense, slow it down, slow it down. And initially I was disorientated and somewhat irritated by this thought because I'm a vision caster and I'm someone who wants to keep going. But here is this picture that we are in partnership together. We are creating a new kingdom reality. And what Paul is saying to these people is, don't you understand, when you come together to eat around the table, the joy is coming and bringing ourselves at the table and enjoying that meal together. No divisions, no fractions, no arguments, no, we're creating an upside-down kingdom, a new kingdom that is exquisite, so foreign to a broken world around us. The second thing that he says is that it's fellowship. Um, Paul is amazed that some of the Christians were hungry and others were drunk. Let me give you a little Greco-Roman context here. Amongst the wealthy, their homes were used to party. And what they would do is they would eat together. And then the women and children were sent out. And then more alcohol would come, the prostitutes would be brought in, and the slaves who performed certain services would enter in. And that was the accepted 
climatology, social climatology for what a meal looked like. Now, these people were none the wiser. They were new to their faith, and this culture was leaking its way in. And isn't it amazing? It's the first time that I see how jolly clever Jesus was. Because it says, on the night that he was betrayed, he said, this is my body, and he broke it, and they ate. And after supper, he said, this is my blood the blood of the new covenant, drink. And the fellowship here isn't coffee, donuts, right shoulder, three pats on the back. This is deep, honest, sustained time around a meal. This is not let's usher the kids and the woman out because we want a sacred silence for meditation and reflection or for promiscuity. This is rather a coming together in which men and women and boys and girls were celebrating together as we'll see in just a moment. Keep the kids in. This is a meal that we enjoy and delight in together. I don't know to what extent Jesus' childhood played into this. There's a Catholic uh, theologian and social anthropologist called Jose Bogola. And he wrote a big fat book like this called Jesus and Historical Approximation. One of the things that was curious for me was his description of Jesus' upbringing in Nazareth, a town of about two to 400 people. And what would happen is three homes, which really meant three rooms. Everyone in a blue collar context lived in one room. Mom, dad, the kids, and sometimes the animals. And three or four homes backed in in a common patio. And there was a grindstone where they did the grinding. There was an oven that they shared. And all the meals were shared together. Now, I don't know what image that creates for you, but my imagination runs wild. Every once a year or so, we go to the Kruger National Park, which is a big park in South Africa. There's no Wi-Fi. There's no TV. There's nothing. We sit outside in the evening. We, we, we make our food on fires, and three generations eat together, and the little ones run around like crazy. Sometimes we've had a home near the fence, and the hyenas will come foraging for little snippets that we illegally throw across the fence. But, but you see, there's the celebration idea And I think Jesus loved his childhood. I think Jesus loved this environment where they played together. and Kids come and eat. And if they come and they eat together and they forage together. And then they go and play again. And then his knowledge of the old covenant which was being fulfilled in him created a picture of deep, honest, true fellowship where life was exchanged around a meal. John Mark will do a fabulous job next Sunday. You and I know that. And I'm sorry those of you disappointed. This was your one time to come to Bridgetown and you thought I'm going to hear the great John Mark and you had moi. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Just go to his podcast and, and be impressed. And, and next Sunday will be better. But, but that's what fellowship was. It was the houses attached to each other sharing a common meal space. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know how impacted you were by the suicide of the celebrities recently. Bourdain, what was his first name? I watched him, followed him, I so enjoyed him. I just was stunned to silence, and family and friends alike said we did not know. Why weren't we told? There is an ingrained longing in a broken world to belong somewhere. And we offer so many alternatives. Do you know one of the greatest gifts we offer a broken world is our dining room table? 
where their knees can tuck in under the safety of our community. And transparency becomes the traveling language, and we're honest and true to who we are. And Paul says, I cannot believe the slaves and the poor go hungry, and the rich say, my food, my food, I get drunk. That's my prevailing cultural influence. But the slaves and the poor go hungry. He says, what are you thinking? This is a new order. This is a new way of doing things. We put our food together, and it's not a potluck, John Mark. We put our food together, and we eat together, and as we eat, we enjoy the wonder of Christian koinonia, fellowship in a journey together. Number three, are you with me? Number three, remembrance. How many times does the author remind us, do this in remembrance of him or Jesus? This remembrance is not an intellectual exercise. Oh, I take a piece of bread and I think, oh, well, of course. Yeah, there was this rabbi guy, Jesus, and I'm a Christian, so I remember him. And, 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 and you know what? I'm, I'm so glad that he, he did that. And, and I dip it in some grape juice and I go and say, is that it? No, no, I don't think that's it. I'll tell you what I think it is. It's this incredible notion that I remember who I was when I first met him. Because I do. I was 18 years old. I was a freshman at college. My father was an alcoholic. I was a broken young man. And I feel almost as if in the crowds of people around me at college, Jesus pushed them aside and he honed in on me and he picked me up. I don't know, I wasn't seeking him. I wasn't this Christian guy who attended all the camps. I was the guy who was out of an exam early so I could get to the pub and have some beers. And Jesus pushed the crowd away and he found me. He said, come and love me as I love you. And he held me and even, I I, I fought him. I said, no, 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 please don't. Please, Please don't. And he held me and he held me and he spoke love and redemption over me, and I could feel the inner stress and anxiety that held me captive begin to wean itself away. And yes, it's been a 40-year journey. But such was the profundity of those early years for me that I've never doubted my Heavenly Father's love. I've never, honestly, Meryl will tell you, I have never doubted the redemption of my Jesus, and I've never doubted the partnership of the Holy Spirit. This is not an historical intellectual remember. This is a deeply emotional narrative that I relive to remind myself in the most holy faith, God is a God of grace. He took me. He took me. He had no need to. I wasn't religious. I wasn't spiritual. I didn't go to the Christian club. I didn't do any of that. He pushed the crowd aside to find me, and he plucked me into a great journey of healing and salvation. When I come to the table and I take the bread, and this morning I had a big chunk of bread and a bottle of wine, and I could hear people gasp as I poured a big glass of wine, but I wanted people to see this was really not just a symbol or an act of religious fervor. It is a deep incision into my heart that his brokenness replaces my brokenness. I love Jesus. I am 60. It sounds so horrible to say that. 
Can I just be 59 for a little bit longer, like 10 years? But, but I love Jesus. And the remembrance that he gives me is the remembrance of the grace that has come into my world. Meryl and I have not had a perfect marriage. We haven't been perfect parents. In fact, Meryl was asked to speak in a Mother's Day event, and she sent a letter out to the girls, our two adult girls are married, and what are the five things you love about me, and what are the five things you... Five things I did well, five things I did badly. And I thought, oh, that's a very honest and brave thing to ask your kids. And both girls came back with the same number one, five things I did well. Mom, we are so grateful that you apologized well. And Meryl said, baby, is that a compliment? <laughs> is that like, well done, Mom, that was amazing. <laughs> but, but, but I tell you, let me let you into a little window of what that looked like. This is what it looked like. Because we said to each other, if we sin publicly, if we fight publicly, we've got to repent publicly. And to the awkward embarrassment on more than a few occasions, we'd have to, sometimes the kids were small as they grew up, sometimes we had to get on our knees, say, kiddos, we're so sorry. My mom and dad fought. And, and that just doesn't bring Jesus into the house. And it bruises your soul and bruises our soul. And, 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 but, but you know how amazing it is, girls, and we take bread. And we say, this is the body of Jesus that was broken. We don't have to be a broken family. We, we don't have to live with brokenness and with anger. We can actually find Jesus, girls. And to be honest with you, often there was tears with us. And then I take a bottle of grape juice and I pour some cups. I say, girls, this is, this is the body, this is the blood of Jesus. And you know how often these little kids would come and put their hands on our, on our hips and pray for us, say, we forgive you. When we have the bread, that's what we're doing in remembrance of. It's this overwhelming gratitude for grace. You know what I find so interesting as a pastor? I find so interesting that people have been at church seven years and one day I'm like, has anyone seen Sarah? Oh, no, no, she doesn't come to this church anymore. I said, really? What went down? Well, actually, Chris, she confided in you, and then you preached, and you mentioned something, and she was so deeply offended by you. And I said, well, when was that? It was about three years ago. So in three years, how many times have we had communion? And three, and how many times, and this isn't to bag on her, I'm just creating a story. This isn't to bag on her. The Bible says when you have ought against your brother, leave the altar. Don't, 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 don't eat it in an unworthy manner, because if you do, some of you will get sick. And some of you will even fall asleep. Why? Because our soul wasn't crafted and created, ladies and gentlemen, to live with pain uncensored. Our soul has been gloriously created, this wonderful picture of a pulsing heart, soft and tender. And it's our job to keep it that way. And what a privilege it is in a community where we eat together, not by the size of the steak or the wafer, 
but by the conviction that when I hurt you, when you hurt me, we come to the table and we say, I am so sorry. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ that was broken. Take, eat. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Drink the cleansing power, the healing power of that glorious name. Communion, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, as recorded here in this text, the primary focus of our meeting. It's the central piece. Architecturally, it was a table, as John Mark will talk about next week, and everything rotated around that, ladies and gentlemen, because a healthy church is not butts on chairs, but souls well guarded around the table of the Lord. Participation, fellowship, remembrance, and lastly, thanksgiving. He says, when you do this, give thanks. You know, um, I was a worship leader, not a good one back in the day. I, I, I wasn't. I, I could play like a half a dozen chords. I look at all these guys now and I'm thinking, what, why do you need so many like turny things? Like, what are you going to do with all these turny things? And does that mean you go quicker? You know, you, what is all, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know, but, 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 but so we, we worshipped. And as I was prepping for this time and just reading a ton, because I'm going to Bridgetown, you've got to read a lot. You know what I mean? You can't just read 10 books. You have to, like, read a lot. And... Uh, an old chorus came to mind. And it was a chorus that I sang because it was so deeply moving to me. I don't know why Jesus loved me. I don't know why He cared. I don't know why He sacrificed His life. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad He did. And I remember standing on the stage in a warehouse with about a thousand people, leading that song, and as I looked around the room, it was full of addicts, prostitutes, dropouts. I was the suburban kid. And tears would just flow down the faces of men and women who never knew there was hope, who never heard of the word grace but maybe someone's name. And the joy of this communion is it takes and brings the eternal into the temporal. It brings hope where there is despair. It brings wholeness where there is destruction. And we used to sing that, and even now when I'm quiet before the Lord, sometimes that song starts reverberating in its simplicity. I don't know why Jesus loved me. When we lose the simplicity of that idea, this becomes a tradition. Only problem is, Jesus said, your traditions make void the word of God. I wonder how many people had this today with no consequence or transformation. How sad. What a privilege it is to come to the table in just a moment, as you and I will, and we think of the thanksgiving that just resonates in our hearts. Jesus your grace, 
Jesus, your mercy. Jesus, your redemption. Jesus, your kindness. Jesus, your goodness. That resonates wave upon wave upon wave. I don't know why Jesus loves you, but this I know he does. As a father, I know he does for you. As a pastor, I know he does for you. As a thinker theologian, I know he does for you. Would you stand with me, please?